It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hi, my guest on the show today is Anthony Iannarino, speaker, author, sales leader. You can find Anthony online at thesalesblog.com. Good morning, Anthony. Hey, Andy. How are you? Great, great. So, yeah, rather than have me read some sort of standard bio about you and so on, please take a minute and introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us what you do and who you do it for. Isn't it always weird listening to somebody read your bio and go through all that stuff? I'm always sitting there going, I wish my mom was here to listen to all these nice things being said about me. It doesn't happen often enough. I'm a, I'm a, a writer and a speaker first and foremost. So I think that the best place to, to find any information about me is thesalesblog.com. It's also anarino.com. I publish there every single day. I'm in the middle of, well, I'm not in the middle. I'm in the final throes of editing the first book that's come out of the work that I've done there at the sales blog. Great. I also have a significant interest in uh, my family staffing business, which I've helped grow from $3 million to $45 million. And I have a, a coaching and consulting firm called B2B Sales Coach and Consultancy, where I work with uh, large, generally international sales organizations as a speaker, as someone who does workshops, and somebody who does some consulting and coaching and helping people really figure out how to maximize the performance of their sales organization. And my final uh, little job is at Capital University, where I'm an adjunct faculty member in their School of Management and Leadership MBA program, where I teach personal selling, persuasive marketing, and digital media or social media marketing. All right. So someone with a lot of spare time, I can tell. Absolutely. Calendar is completely clear. Completely full, right? there. So how'd you get your start in sales? Accidentally. I, and I think that's true for a lot of people. No one really ever wakes up and goes you know, at 11 years old to their parents and says, I've decided I want to be a sales rep. My mom and her partner had started a retained search firm when I was a kid, like probably 13 years old. And they were doing pretty well. And they decided to expand into temporary staffing. And they started a clerical division and that was going well. And they needed somebody to interview light industrial candidates and to help start that division. So I was fronting a rock band at night and I needed a day job, and I thought, this will be pretty good because it should be pretty loose. It's a family business. Turns out the family business has other ideas about what your work is supposed to look like and how hard you're supposed to try. <laughs> and they essentially, they handed me a little uh, binder that had index cards in it. And the index cards were a script of asking for an appointment and overcoming the objections you get asking for an appointment. But I was too young and naive to know that I was selling, and I would have never agreed that that's what I was doing if you would have told me that's what it was. I was just doing what I was told to do, which was calling people and trying to get an appointment. And I have enough combativeness and enough, I guess, competitiveness in myself at that time that it was just a game for me to get people who said no to say yes. And I did pretty well at it. And I won accounts and I was doing well. And basically, my main job was interviewing light industrial candidates. So when I, I got to a certain point with the band where I couldn't do anymore, I moved to Los Angeles to take it to another level. And I had to have a day job, so I went to a big staffing firm called Olston there. It was about sure, a four, sure. $4 billion concern at that time. Right. Well-known And name. Yeah, and I was, just, I was working a desk doing light industrial staffing, and I was doing what I knew to do, which was calling people and seeing if I could help more people. And uh, eventually I got a new manager, and he recognized the sales reps that he had weren't selling, 
and he fired them and showed up at my desk one day and said, I want you to be our outside salesperson. And I thought I heard him say the words, I want you to be a psychopathic axe murderer because that's what I thought salespeople were. I thought selling was something you do to somebody, not for somebody or with somebody. Exactly, exactly. And under his, it, he forced me under threat of firing me uh, to go into outside sales. And I, I did really well right out of the gate under his leadership. And we grew a branch that was doing 2,000 hours to 22,000 hours. And it became the fastest growing branch in the country. And I won one of the biggest accounts in the western half of the United States. Somebody out of New York won a bigger one. But on the western half, I had the biggest account. And uh, I, I just found my calling. I mean, it, it went from thinking my job was to create value for customers in an operational role to understanding that sales allowed me to create a bigger impact. And uh, once I did that, I never looked back. So you really started as an inside sales guy, it sounds like. You're talking about almost like a definition of what a you know, sales development rep is today and SDR and that you were on the phone trying to set appointments initially and then moved to... Actually, the majority of my day was interviewing people and placing them, but mm. I, didn't, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be selling. It just no, nobody had told me to do anything other than what I, I knew to do coming out of the family business. So I, I found out where people had worked before and I just started calling people and some of them said, yeah, we'll talk to you. Come on out. And some of them said yes. And the reason my manager identified me as a salesperson is because I had a list of clients that was bigger than our sales force's list of clients. And I wasn't a salesperson and didn't want to be. I just thought I was supposed to help people. You're a rock star. I was a rock star. That's so what, what I was supposed to be doing. Right. So what, what type of music did you guys play? We did a lot of original material, but that, the band in L.A. was interesting because a bunch of guys from Columbus came out to live with me in my one-bedroom apartment in Brentwood. Your entourage. Yeah. And we had a, we had a couple summers in Ohio where we toured around playing, and we learned about 500 cover songs. So we could literally play My Sharona by The Knack and Metallica for whom the bell tolls and everything in between. We could play whole ACDC records and whole Motley Crue records. And um, that was sort of our thing was we could show up on Friday night and play four sets and never repeat the same song and then play Saturday night and play four sets with a totally different four sets. So we knew a lot of material and it made us, uh, it made us worth paying because when people showed up, they were going to hear ACDC and ZZ Top and things they knew and not just some young band's original songs. Right. So what did you learn from your rock music career that helped you in sales? I, I actually, I did a lot of selling of the band. I mean, and, and as the singer and as the front man, I mean, I, I'll tell you the, the best and probably most fun story about this. The very first gig I booked was at a skating rink because I had worked at a skating rink and they had another one on the other side of town that sometime had bands play. So at 17 years old, I went out and I sold the manager on booking the band because we had a really nice following for, you know, 17, 18-year-old guys. Um, and we, we started playing in the bars after that, but the bars didn't look like a possibility at first. And to get this guitar player we needed into the band, we had to change the name of the band from Stone Groove to Rock Candy. And I hated, <laughs> I hated the name. It was too hair metal and we weren't playing hair metal. We were playing all kinds of... Uh, more type of Black Crows kind of stuff. Right. That's what our stuff sounded like. And so we go out and we play this gig, and a guy shows up to see some girl who's actually there to see me, and he comes back to our, our makeshift dressing room, and he threatens to uh, wait for me in the parking lot to fight me. And he doesn't know that my brother's standing right next to him, who is our bass player, and my brother just absolutely clobbers him. <laughs> but, but he gets up and he runs across the skating room floor, and he says, I've got a gun. So we stop him from getting out to his car, 
and police are called. And I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff. And so I have to go in and get paid the following day. And the manager wasn't there when all this happened, but of course he got the story. So we all drive out to, to pick up the check and the, they all turn to me and say, go in and get the check. And I say, we're all going in, we're a band. And they're like, no, you're the singer, it's your gig. You go get the money. And he owes us $600, which is a lot of money for a rock band. So I walk in alone and he tells me, I'm not paying you. You know, you had the police called and there's children here and we need to make sure they're safe. And I'm saying, no, no, no. He said he had a gun and all this other stuff. And we're going back and forth. And I finally sell him on giving me the check. We'd rented lights. We'd rented equipment. We had people to pay. So he holds the check in front of me. And before he hands it to me, he says, I'm going to give you this check, but I want you to know you boys are going to get a bad reputation. So I walked out to the truck that way the whole band was waiting in and I showed him the check and they said, you got the check? And I said, yeah, and we got a new band name, Bad Reputation. So I was able to collect the check and sell on getting paid and I was able to get rid of the horrible name Rock Candy. Rock Candy, Bad Reputation, yeah. much better. Much better. Better street cred for sure. You always have to sell though in every part of your life. I mean, and being in a rock band is no different. If you want a gig, you got to go promise that you're going to have people show up that you're going to give them a good show. I mean, it's, a, it's all selling. Exactly. So how has selling changed during the course of your career? I mean, and what changes have you had to make to sort of adapt to this new environment? I've been fortunate in that as somebody who's been entrepreneurial and had businesses, I've gotten business acumen by default, by you know, necessity, by having to learn uh, to manage a profit and loss statement in a balance sheet. I'll tell you the biggest change, Andy, that I've seen. As a salesperson, you used to need sales acumen, and you still do. I mean, you used to need to know how to close. You need to know how to prospect. You need to tell stories. You need to know how to diagnose, to differentiate, and negotiate. I mean, for 30 or 40 years, that was a pretty good skill set to have. But now, as business has gotten more competitive, as things have gotten more complex, what we're accountable for salespeople has changed dramatically over the last 20 years. And what we're responsible for for our clients has changed. And I think the biggest change, the skills that you've had to, to adapt and learn to be able to be effective is business acumen, number one. I think you have to think like a real business manager. You have to think about strategy. You have to think about execution. You have to think about how the decisions you make impact the business all the way down the line. I think you also have to learn how to manage change inside an organization, and you have to understand how decisions are made by consensus and how to get people behind a change initiative. And that's not just on the customer side. That's on your company side, too. I mean, you, you have to get your own company behind doing what's right for your customer because our solutions are now so complex and so integrated and so important and strategic for our customers. And you have to have leadership skills now where you're going to be responsible for making sure that your customer gets the outcome. So you've got a greater accountability, but you don't have any formal authority over any team on your side and you've got no formal authority over their team either. Mm -hmm. But you still need to be able to make things happen. So it takes a lot of different skills. That, and these are skills that I would call third tier. They're a higher level set of skills than you've needed in the past. I mean, closing, objection handling, prospecting, presenting, those are tier one. We've been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. 40 years, maybe 50 years, as the markets got crowded in the industrial age with lots of people creating things that look alike, you know, diagnosing and differentiating and ne negotiating the value creation and value capture are good skills. But now we're at a totally different age and a totally different level of skill sets. And so how do you train those? I mean, so, you know, your basic thesis is, and I, I agree with it, is that, you know, it's less about 
command and control, hey, let's go sell to the CEO because he's going to make this decision by himself. But building consensus within an organization, multiple touch points, multiple influencers, not just a single internal advocate as many of the old sales systems talked about. So how do you, how do you train people to adapt and survive in this type of environment? You know, it's interesting that you ask that question because I always talk about business acumen with situational knowledge attached to it. And, and so the way that you get business acumen is not by reading a book about business acumen, although that's a great thing to do and I recommend it. But you, you have to feel it. You have to touch it. And I talk about selling and swimming all the time because you can't learn to swim by reading a book. I mean, you could read it and intellectualize swimming, but you don't really know what it means until you get out there. So in my experience and from my opinion, you've got to give people a set of experiences. You've got to create the awareness that they're supposed to be capturing this business acumen and learning. And then you have to be very intentional about what experiences you give salespeople so that they can get that business acumen and start to feel things and start to look at it. Mm-hmm. And in the first book, which uh, I've got one more week with the editor and then it's going to go to the line editor, I've got a recipe, but I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. One way that I picked it up really quick, I didn't know I was doing at the time. So this wasn't intentional and it wasn't that I was a super thoughtful kid at 25 years old that I knew like, hey, I need business acumen because the future is going to be different. I didn't. I had no clue. But I always wanted to learn. I was just curious um, generally. So I would go into customers and say, you know, I don't understand third-party logistics. I don't understand how the business works. How are you guys measured? How do you price this? Explain to me what cost plus is so I understand why your pricing model is what it is and how, how I'm supposed to help you. And I got a lot of people who were tutors who would teach me their business. And it's an interesting thing. We think that the customer expects us to know everything. And we're, we're definitely sensitive when we're young that we look young and that they know we don't have experience. But what I found at that time, and I still think it's true, is if you go in and say, teach me, I want to learn you're going to find all kinds of teachers outside of your company, inside your company, and people who are going to be willing to give you that education and explain to you why they think what they think, why they believe what they believe, and why they're making a certain set of decisions. I agree. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that really holds back a lot of salespeople is, just as you said, and, and really in business owners and, and CEOs, is they feel like they need to know in advance, right? That they always need to be the expert with the customer. And I think I agree with you. I think it's very powerful sometimes to show up with a customer and say, yeah, can you teach me? I just don't understand what you're doing here. And by making sure what you're telling them is that you're willing to go to the extra effort to learn in depth their business, their industry, the problems they may have. And acquiring that knowledge, you'll be able to come back with a better solution for them. And I think people generally want to teach. I mean, we we want to tell our story. It's funny. I went to a Giant Eagle grocery store here yesterday to get a salad. And um, I was picking this up and paying for it, and the girl behind the counter yawned. And she said, I'm so tired today. I apologize for yawning. And I said, no problem. I said, maybe you just need another cup of coffee. And she said, I have a four-month-old brand-new baby. And she couldn't wait to tell me that she had a baby. I mean, and, and that's just what human beings do. We want to share that kind of stuff. And if you go in and open the door for a decision-maker to share with you how they view the business – you might have trouble getting out of their office after a couple hours. I mean, they love to teach. We do love to tell our story and share with people. Yeah. Well, I think people like to share their expertise. They do. And it's not just a matter of flattering a customer by asking them the question. People generally want to share what they are proud of knowing. There's no doubt. And they, they want to share it with people who care that they believe really want to help them. And I think if you show up with that intention, it's easy for them to, to help you. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a short break, but before we take the break, I want to give you 
Anthony a question to think about, and we'll talk about it when we get back, is sort of a hypothetical situation. You're, let's say you're a manager, a new manager at a company. Not that you're newly promoted, but you're just brought in to help manage the company, struggling a little bit. What two changes would you make with the sales team that would have the biggest impact? If you had, let's say, one week to really make a, make a difference, what are the two changes you would make that would make an impact? So stay with us. Uh, after the break, Anthony is going to share with us his secrets uh, for how you amp up your sales quickly, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. So welcome back. My guest today is Anthony Iannarino. Catch Anthony at thesalesblog.com or at iannarino.com, which is I-A-N-N-A-R-I-N-O. Com. Traditional spelling, the easy very one. traditional spelling, right? Just like Smith. So, before we get to the big question I asked you before the break, you know, you're a salesperson. You're also a CEO of a company, um, and you work in your family business. I mean, what what keeps you awake about your own company sales? Let's say the staffing company. What keeps you awake at night? I don't know that anything keeps me awake at night. I can tell you. I'm going to flip that on you. Just it's what what gets me excited and gets me up in the morning. Sure. I mean, there's just there's so much opportunity right now in in the United States. This is still just a tremendous market with a ton of growth, and every business that I touch that I'm involved in, there's so much growth opportunity. I'm excited to get up and do what needs to be done to take these businesses to another level, and that that's the part that charges me up. So I don't I don't lay awake at night worrying. I don't worry anymore because I just found out that worrying or, or staying awake at night worrying about things, just it's, it's not a good use of my emotional energy because anything that I was worried about, and I've had worries. I mean, I had the business, the staffing business was cut in half on October 1st of 2008, literally cut mm-hmm. in half. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I can do about preventing something like that from happening again. All I can do is do what's right so that if something does happen, that one, I can survive it, and two, I can capitalize on something that happens when the economy turns around, which is exactly what I did then and exactly what I would do again. So what did you but do? I, uh, re- I found a way to retain all of my staff so I didn't have to put anybody in an unemployment line. And how how'd you and, do that? Um, I made cuts and won a couple anchor accounts that were profitable enough to let me retain everybody. I mean, so I had to work really hard, really fast. But I had a great team, and, and they did that. But the, the trick was I, didn't want to, I just didn't want to put people in the unemployment line during that, that time because I was afraid they wouldn't get back to work. I, just, I didn't think that they would be able to survive it and come out on the other side okay because the whole industry, that industry, was literally cut in half uh, overnight. But I kept everybody, and, and honestly, there was, my intention was not to hurt people, but when the economy turned around, I still had a full staff of people and a full sales force you know, working really hard, and we turned around really, really fast, a lot faster than people who had made cuts. And I, uh, honestly, this is a, a tougher story to tell, but it's, you know, I had a lot of people who were unhappy with the decision, and a lot of people, uh, we all took pay cuts so we didn't have to put anybody on the unemployment lines, but mm-hmm. the... Uh, 
they didn't really understand why until we were about six months in. And then I started having people say, thank you. You know, now I understand why we're, we're doing what we're doing together and, and why we're all still here working at this. So I, I don't worry anymore, but I do, I do have some things that I think really matter. And that's going out and capturing dream clients, which uh, if you, you've read my work, you know, that's, that's one of the big things for me. Find the right. people you create the most value for and just pursue them relentlessly nurture them over time and know that you're going to get your shot. And that's where I spend most of my focus. How do we capture more of these? How do we create more value for this group of clients? That's where the action is. So let's talk about the sort of the flip side then. Not, again, not trying to get, get negative, but you know, I think there's a lot of lessons that we learn from our failures. So describe a, a big failure you've had in your career and what you learned from it and what are the lessons that other people could draw from those. I, I just wrote about three of them uh, about a month ago, and it's, it's interesting because so many people resonated and, and reposted that and shared that post because I just wrote about deals that I personally lost. And I ask salespeople, tell me about a deal you lost, and they go, oh, well, yeah, they decided to make no decision, or they went with a cheaper price competitor, anything except taking responsibility for the deal. And I always just take 100% responsibility for my my mistakes. I was the one that was selling. I could have done something different. So I'll give you one mm -hmm. uh, that, that taught me a lot of lessons from many years ago. But I had a deal where I had five discovery meetings and facility tours with a decision maker. I had a verbal commitment to move forward. I had pages and pages of notes, an implementation plan we'd gone through. I had full agreement. And I knew that I hadn't got the decision other than the verbal. I did not have a contract signed. Well, the decision maker decided to see another firm. And he brought them in and they had this novel, one thing that was really novel that he hadn't seen before. And he was so enamored with it, so taken with it. About a week after he made the verbal commitment, he called me and said, um, I decided to go with one of your competitors. And I was absolutely shocked. I was so shocked. I said, I got to meet with you right now. I drove over to his office. And he said, you know, I just saw this one thing that you didn't have that they had. And it's so appealing to us right now. And I said, let me show you my, our history of our, our conversation here because nowhere does that one thing show up. And I've got five pages of notes. I've got our implementation plan. And uh, he said, you know, I didn't know that it was interesting to me until I saw it. And I said, we could have done the same thing for you had I known that was important to you. And he said, I've already signed the contract with your competitor. Mm -hmm. and, and I learned at that point, like, no matter what happens, you want the last bite at the apple. If you know that you're in a competitive situation, you want to make sure that you ask for the commitment that after they've seen everybody, before they make the decision, you get the last bite at the apple. You get to come in and represent. You get to cover any bases. And I will even say this to customers now. You know, After you go through this process, before you make a decision, I'd like to ask you for one more meeting so we can resolve any concerns you have. And if there's anything else that you saw that was super interesting to you that we didn't cover, we may or may not have it, but I'd like to at least be able to address it. And I want that commitment because I learned from my mistake. And um, I've had other people say, well, that really wasn't your mistake. He shouldn't have done that. You know what? I don't have any control over him. I only can control what I can do. Exactly. So as a salesperson, I'm 100% responsible. So now I'm 100% empowered to do something about it. And right. if you look at it through that lens, you can get better pretty quickly. Yeah. No, I think it's a great suggestion for people to always try to strive for that last meeting. All right, so question we asked right before the break in terms of, let's say, your manager in a new situation. You're basically thinking, gosh, i got to make a big impact here. I'm going to give myself a week with a new sales team. So what two changes do you make that have the biggest impact? 
That's a, I mean, that's a very tough hypothetical because I don't know what's wrong. But let me just let me tell you what my perception of what would be wrong right out of the gate sure. and what, what I would want to do with the first week if I had a week. Um, and if that's all the time I have to start making a difference, I would want to I would want to do one thing. But basically, I'll roll it into two for your two part question. Opportunities are created in two places, existing customers and new customers. So the first thing I would want to do is do a full review of customers where I already have contracts, but where I don't have the wallet share that might be available to me. Right. Because that's the fastest path. They already know me. I'm already sending them an invoice. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not prospecting here. I have a direct relationship so I can go in and walk in their door and talk to the stakeholders I need to figure out how I can improve the business that I'm doing with them right now. That would be day one. And then I would want to bring brand new reverse engineer. What's our value proposition and who are our dream clients and how fast can I get this sales force in front of those people who are going to resonate with our value proposition so strongly that it's going to make total sense to them to consider doing business with us. And that would be the first two things that I would think of in your broad um, hypothetical, you know, and it's, it's tough, but when new sales managers come in, I think they get, like salespeople, they get wrapped up in 300 different things. Mm -hmm. There's comp plans, there's reporting, there's internal meetings, there's all these other things. But at the end of the day, you're going to get judged on how well did you do with the resource that we gave you in producing the results that you're supposed to produce. And all of those results are outside of the building that you're sitting in. Yep. All of the results are happening somewhere else. And the faster you move your focus from I've got to worry about the internal part of this business, which I know what it's like because the internal part of the business is constantly chipping away at your attention and your resources. But you've got to work with the people that you have and with the customers and prospects that you have to actually do what produces results. None of it happens inside your building. It all happens somewhere else. And the sooner you get there, the better. Perfect. Great answer. Thank you. All right. So we're going to wrap up here with some uh, rapid fire questions and answers. So short answers to these questions. You can do free association, if you will. So what's the most powerful sales tool in your arsenal? Trust. Excellent. Who's your sales role model? Or who was it in the past and who is it today? Uh, in the past, it was my first mentor at Olston who had the ability to sell more with fewer words than anybody I've ever seen. And now I would have to say the biggest um, person I learned from was my mother, who was a, another person who you would never call a salesperson but has client relationships that has lasted 35 years. Um, just based on her caring for them. What's the one book that every salesperson should read? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Your favorite music to listen to to psych yourself up for a sales call? For those about to rock, we salute you, ACDC, 1982. There's no better rock anthem anywhere. <laughs> What's the first sales activity you do every day? The first sales activity I do every day is one of two things. Either write the blog post, which I see as marketing and brand building and nurturing, or make prospecting calls. Name one tool you use for sales management that you can't live without. Right now it's ProsperWorks, which is uh, a new CRM I'm using. ProsperWorks, okay. Where's that available? It's a, it's a plug-in for uh, Gmail, and it's available in their, their apps market. Okay. ProsperWorks. No, no, no data entry. It just pulls everything out of your email, and it allows you to create opportunities around that without having to type anything in. Very cool. We'll have to check that out. What's the one most important thing a new or inexperienced salesperson should focus on to improve? Their ability to create value for customers. What's your favorite social media tool and why? 
Twitter. And I, I still think Twitter is the best social media platform out there. It's great for engagement and it's great for sharing. And uh, I still like it the best. What do you do to keep physically fit? Right now I'm running and I'm doing body weight exercises, rotating squats and push-ups and crunches. Do you have a goal for your running? A marathon in October. Which one? Columbus. Aha. Okay. Perfect. Hopefully it's I'm not... rethinking that though, Andy. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm rethinking it because I'm not sure um I'm not sure that running's doing enough for me. So this is a, like a resetting of my goals because it's not giving me flexibility and strength. It's just all endurance and cardio for me. So why don't you come with me in September? I'm running the Maui Half Marathon. The Maui Half Marathon sounds great. <clears throat> All right. We've got room at the inn. So my sister and I are making an annual thing of this. This is our second time doing it. So it's a great event. Very flat, very warm, obviously beautiful as well. It can't be more beautiful than Maui. So what's the one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople? And what's your answer? How can I be more compelling? And what they're really saying is that I can't get my customer to take action. And there's a two-part answer to this. The first part is if you want to know what compels people, if you want to know how to compel people, find out what's already compelling them. And I think that's the first trick is to know why should they be changing anyway. I mean, mm -hmm. so that's, that's what we're going to hang this on. And the second thing is what commitments did you not ask for when you needed them that you now are struggling to get because you didn't do what you should have done uh, somewhere earlier in the sales process. And those seem to be the two big areas that cause them to ask that question. Either one, they don't know what should compel the customer, or two, they didn't get the commitment that they needed to control the process. And so for the answer to them to learn what compels the customer and how to ask for commitments? Yes. So last question, what do you consider your greatest success outside of work? My family, no doubt about it. That's my, my number one on every list I have. How many kids? Three children, 17-year-old son, twin 15-year-old daughters. Very good. All right. Well, I want to thank Anthony today for joining us. Uh, Anthony, how can people get in contact with you? TheSalesBlog.com. That's the best place to go. When you go, there's a sign-up for the newsletter, and that's what I would point you to. That's uh, every Sunday morning, long-form content, actionable, shows up in your inbox, and you can prepare for Monday with what I send you. It's good stuff. I read it every Sunday. It comes to my mailbox uh, right alongside my newsletter that I send out as well. So remember, make it a part of your day every day to learn something new to help you amp up your business. I want to thank Anthony Anarino for joining us. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.